Welcome to the Euroclear podcast, Pastime Talking and Teaching History. Today's episode is titled History Under Threat, and we tackle censorship and prosecution of historians. The aim of this podcast is to discuss topics and ideas that are relevant for history educators so that we inspire each other and also learn from some of the great people that are part of this community. This podcast is just one of many ways in which Euroclio reaches out to educators. We do webinars, blogs, conferences. So please visit our website euroclio.eu and follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. So today we are very pleased to have uh, two guests on this podcast and we hope that they can shed some light on some issues um, that are going on in the world right now and also one particular concrete case of historians coming and being under threat. Now, the particular case that we're going to talk about is Brazil, actually. Uh, so we're stepping out of the Euro, Euro, our Euro bubble, yeah. and we're going into um, the second largest democracy in the Western Hemisphere, which, which is Brazil. So, Andreas, why do you think it's so important to talk about Brazil today? Well, like you said, it, it's, a, it's a very big democracy. Uh, it's a very important country for, for Latin America. It often sets the tone about what's happening on that whole um, continent, if you like. Um, so the recent developments there are, are really um, worrying in many ways with a new um, right-wing government that is uh, attacking history and, and trying to change uh, how history is written, really. So uh, a warm welcome to Professor Anton de Bats, who joins us from uh, Groningen in the Netherlands, and Professor Arthur Avila, who joins us all the way from Porto Alegre in southern Brazil. Welcome to you both. Professor Debats, you have coordinated a network of concerned historians since 1995. This is an international network that seeks to discuss and shed light on historians who are under threat. You have also written and researched extensively on the legal framework of historical writing and its complex relationship with democracy. Your latest book is titled Crimes Against History and came out uh, last year. As a first question for you, Professor Debats, um, could you elaborate a bit on the ideas behind the network for concerned historians and, and how it came about? Yes, um, the idea was born um, about 40 years ago, four decades ago, uh, when I was working as a volunteer for Amnesty International in Costa Rica, in Central America. Because as a volunteer for Amnesty International, I noticed that uh, Amnesty uh, from time to time organized campaigns for historians who were in prison and historians who were tortured and historians who even were killed. And uh, I noticed this in uh, my small desk in, in the Amnesty International office of Costa Rica and I realized that my colleagues, my, the historians who were my colleagues, did not know this. They did not know this be, uh, unless they were members of Amnesty International and read all the materials. And therefore, I quickly realized that there was need of a bridge between the world of international human rights organizations, such as Amnesty on the one hand, and the world community of historians on the other. That was the first idea. And this... Uh, uh, ripened in my mind for many years and I did other things in the meantime but finally 25 years ago I uh, also with the technology available then email etc um, I uh, 
I established such a simple and light network, the network of concerned historians, to establish that bridge between these two worlds. And um, the network is based on two pillars. The first pillar is that it, um, the network of concerned historians participates in campaigns organized by international human rights organizations and international organizations of historians uh, when they campaign for persecuted uh, colleagues. And the second pillar is that each year I compile a, uh, an annual report um, about persecuted historians and the censorship of history all over the world. And I therefore I uh, consult all the human rights reports that cross my table and that, uh, that catch my eye. And I have done this for 25 years. I'm now preparing the 26th uh, annual report. Yeah, thank you. And, and that, that leads nicely to my, my second question, actually, which is about your, your annual reports, which I also encourage our, our listeners to, to consult and to, to, to look at and, and look also at their own country because they, it does touch on, uh, unfortunately, it's a, it's a very long list of, of incidents that you, that you map and that you record. Um, my, my question is really, what is it that makes historians in particular so dangerous? Um, and how does this censorship of history and, and historians manifest itself across so many different regimes? Um, your question is um, very important. Why, what makes it, what makes historians so dangerous? Well, I would say that historians search for the truth about the past. And that, that is their essential, um, their essential uh, task, searching for the truth about the past. And the findings of this search for truth about the past can be, need not be, but can be an opposition to the views of those in power and the views of those in power about the past. And, and there is always a tension between the findings of historians about the past, about a certain um, uh, a topic in the past, and the views of those in power about that topic. And if those in power depend on their own views of the past to maintain their power, rather than on democratic elections, they may find the findings, the, the research results of historians to be disturbing. And that is the basic reason why they censor history and persecute historians. Um, and in your uh, reports or in your work, you also refer to not only historians, but also history producers to include more people than maybe only historians, which yes. also touches upon history educators as history yes. producers. And are there also cases of history teachers being prosecuted? And why would that be the case? Yeah. Oh, yes, there are uh, quite a lot of cases of history teachers. To give you one uh, example from Brazil, um, a recent example, I heard that uh, a 
history teacher called Valeria Borges uh, and several other history teachers were vilified in a YouTube campaign, um, which a campaign on YouTube which accused them of spreading communism. And Valeria Borges said that um, she and her colleagues had been overwhelmed with messages of hate. And this created a climate of fear. This was just last year in an online practice known as linchamento, lynching. So this is one uh, uh, recent example of how history teachers can be jeopardized, can be in danger. If you ask for the reasons, that is a very interesting and very complex question also. I see many reasons why history education in particular are the privileged targets of censorship all over the world. And let me briefly go over these reasons. First, there is the scope of history education and of education in general, because history is part of the general education and it reaches all the children and all the youngsters of a certain age in a society. So the scope of education in general and of history education in particular is uncommonly large. It reaches the complete society of a certain age. The second re reason is that it reaches the youth. It is directed, history education, as is uh, education in general, is directed to the next generation, to the entire next generation, including the future leadership of the country. That is a second reason. A third reason is the language, the language of history education and of history textbooks in particular. History textbooks are usually written in an accessible language, a simplified language that is readable, not only for academics and not only for history teachers, but also uh, which is accessible for large parts of the population, such as students, uh, history pupils and history students, but also their parents. So it is a, um, a popular version of academic history. Uh, a fourth reason that I see uh, for, for history education being targeted as an object of censorship is that it trains the skill of criticism, the skills of criticism, and it helps to question dogmas and ideologies. And that is an important skill, of course, um, but it is also dangerous for those in power because it, it, it helps people to become critical. And the fifth and last reason that I see for, for history education, for the importance of history in education in a political context is that it is possible 
that history education inspires and acts as a trigger, not only for historical awareness, but also for political awareness. In, in a certain sense, history education, when it develops historical awareness and political awareness, it becomes an instrument of reform, an instrument of change, and therefore it can become subversive and dangerous. So if we combine these factors, these five factors, scope, an audience of youngsters, a simple and accessible language, the skill of criticism, and the potential for action, there you have all the ingredients of history education becoming a dangerous and interesting, an interesting but also a dangerous tool. Thank you very much. So, we, so are, the, we are a bit dangerous here yeah, yeah. The, the, as history educators. That's, that's, uh, that's clear for, for, for many regimes, not, not only uh, perhaps the more dictatorial ones, but one, one aspect we wanted to talk to, of course, with, with relation to Brazil, um, it is still a, a, a major democracy in, the, in this world. And it's, it's, um, it's, it's an important country in that, in that sense as well. That, we, yet we see very worrying trends, and I want to. to you mentioned Brazil uh, in your in your talk as well, um, Tone, and I want to to then turn to Professor Arthur Avila um, to follow up uh, specifically on on the case of Brazil. You you are an historian um, teaching in the Federal University of of Rio Grande do Sul in, in in Brazil. Your research has in fact centered mostly on North American history, if I if I understand correct, correctly. But lately, you have also um, started researching a bit the abuses and uh, abuses of of the past during Bolsonaro's government. So my my first question to you is: Our listeners will be aware of the new government in Brazil, um, headed by Jair Bolsonaro. But what they might not know so much about is is how has this affected the state of history and history education in in your country, and could you explain to us briefly what has happened since he came to power? Well, first of all, thank you guys for the invite to speak with you. Uh, well, since Bolsonaro's ascension to power, we've been witnessing uh, a slowly degradation of Brazilian democracy. Uh, we're still a formal democracy. We still have our constitutional rights guaranteed, but uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, we've been, we, we, we've been witnessing an encroachment, an authoritarian encroachment on our democracy, which is not a surprise, given Bolsonaro's history. Uh, he's a politician who made his career out of speaking the vilest things about women, about black Brazilians, about his political opponents, He's defended more than once the execution of political opponents, including during the campaign, the presidential campaign. Uh, he's a nostalgic for the last military dictatorship. Uh, he's actually made his military career in the last years of the, of the dictatorship. So, uh, and he surrounded himself uh, with a group of like-minded politicians and ideologues, which, is, uh, which shows that he's not alone uh, in attempting to destroy Brazilian democracy. And obviously the whole chaotic scenario of the pandemic is, is making things much worse. So the first thing we, we must know about Bolsonaro and his government, uh, so as I said, he's not alone in that, is that 
he and his supporters are fiercely anti-science. They do not like scientists. They do not like sciences, not only the human sciences, sciences as a whole. Uh, they despise public education. Uh, they despise education as a whole. Uh, so in many ways, historians are not alone in suffering attacks from this government and supporters. In Brazil, most of the sciences, most of scientific research uh, is conducted on federal universities, which are funded by uh, federal money or other state agencies. So most of our researches are funded with public money. And the Ministry of Education under Bolsonaro, uh, his name is uh, Abraham Weintraub, uh, also made a career out of uh, persecuting uh, scientists. He despises the sciences as well. So the scenario is really nightmarish, so to speak. Uh, I think there are two types of attacks against history and historians being made by the government. One is a, what we could call a new reactionary kind of attack and the other a new liberal attack. But both of them are coordinated and happening at the same time. So they're not really apart. They, they, they follow the same logic, although their rhetoric and practices may not be the same uh, uh, at all times. The new reactionary kind of attack has been conducted by the ideologues of uh, Bolsonaro. One of them is Olavo de Carvalho, is an astrologist, self-titled philosopher, who went to Virginia and actually displays the American flag on his house. So that goes to show how much of a patriot he is. Um, I don't have anything against the American flag, but he's, a, to, uh, for a self-styled Brazilian nationalist, I think is a little bit lost. Uh, nevertheless, Olavo de Carvalho has made a career in Brazil and is now very famous in our country, sadly, uh, by attacking uh, historians who, according to him, promote cultural Marxism, gender ideology, and spread lies about Brazilian history, especially about the last military, uh, last military dictatorship. And they deny that there were tortures. They deny that there were any political violence happening during the, uh, the dictatorship. They say the military were honored, honored, honored men who saved us from communism, and that's it. And they also idealize uh, the 19th century Brazilian empire, uh, and they deny that slavery had anything to do with it, or that slavery had any major impact on Brazilian society. Uh, but they also idealize the European Middle Ages. It's quite funny, actually, to see a lot of uh, Brazilian government officers displaying you know, Templar symbols, and uh, uh, being quite obsessed with the, with the history of medieval Europe. Uh, one of Bolsonaro's, uh, I think his, he works in the foreign ministry. Uh, when Bolsonaro won, on the next day, he went to Twitter to say, Deus levut, God wills it. And he also you know, displays a lot of Templar symbols in his tweets, etc. And obviously this obsession with the European Middle Ages uh, is an attempt to try to turn Brazilian history into a whites-only history, as if there weren't any African people in Brazil, as if there weren't any Amerindians here in Brazil, and to turn Brazil into an extension of European Christendom, as if we were the last bastions of a Christianity that's been attacked by communism, by Islamism, by feminism, etc. Actually, our foreign minister, uh, Ernesto Araujo, has been saying those things around the globe, uh, which obviously is a shame. So this 
this new reactionary attack depends on the delegitimation of historians, because we are the ones, as Professor Debates said, uh, we are the ones who will tell the truth. I said, no, Brazil is not an extension of Europe. It may be one of its fundamental parts, but we're not an extension of Europe. We're just a little bit down south. <laughs> You know, we're Latin, we're Latin Americans. Uh, and we're the ones who will say that the military dictatorship killed people, tortured people, exiled people. And we're the ones who will, who will sort of uh, dismount their narrative, dismantle it a little bit, piece by piece. And there's also been a new liberal attack, which basically says that history and the human sciences actually are useless. Since they do not have an instant financial and economic value, they should not be funded by the state. They should actually be wiped out from school curricula. They should be wiped out from universities. Uh, it, it, it's, a, it's, a shame of, it's a shameful thing, really, what's going on in Brazil. We're still not in the stage that, for example, Turkey is. We're not seeing explicit censorship. We're not seeing arrests. But because we, we still have a, a, a democratic constitution at place in Brazil. But on a day-to-day -day basis, it gets really tiresome because as Professor Debye said, uh, people are suffering attacks, physical attacks at times, depending on the place. So I think the future is really sort of grim for, for history and historians in Brazil, uh, unless Bolsonaro you know, leaves power soon. Um, so basically what you're describing is, is democracy under threat or under siege in Brazil at this moment. And uh, history professors as teachers are being uh, prosecuted or harassed by the supporters of the far-right regime that is in power right now. So I was wondering how are teachers reacting to this? How are they coping with this, indeed what you call a day-to-day Tires, tiredness that you are developing. So what is their coping strategy or their mechanism to keep going? Well, I mean, to understand that, you must understand that Brazil's relationship to its teachers have always been horrible. Uh, they have been receiving low wages for decades now. Whenever there's a teacher striking, there's, all, there's always a heavy repression against them. You know, we saw about two or three years ago in Curitiba when the police beat heavily a number of teachers. Uh, it's just, I mean, it's not only, it, it, Brazil, in, in Brazil there is a, a constant project that is the dismantling of the public educational system. This is one thing that precedes Bolsonaro and will go on after him. You know, this emptying of funding from the public educational system uh, and, you know, and, and, and channeling this money into the private system. So it's really uh, a disgraceful thing for years now, has been a disgraceful thing for years now. But obviously when these things are joined with ideological attacks as the ones we've been witnessing, things get much worse. Teachers have been reacting in many ways. Uh, first of all, there's been uh, a steady support by, number of, by numbers of parents, uh, you know, supporting teachers. Here in my hometown, there is a movement called Parents for Democracy and they've been militating against uh, the party-free education 
they've been militating against uh, these far-right attackers, uh, and they've been winning small victories here and there, like you know, uh, uh, preventing a teacher from being fired or uh, intervening in certain situations. Uh, but overall, most teachers, and I've seen friends of mine doing this, are actually leaving the profession. Because at times it just gets too tiresome, the pay is not that good, and they just will do something else. And when you have such an, a far-right encroachment on every sphere of the government, things get much difficult. So, but there's been uh, social media campaigns. Uh, teachers sometimes fire back with lawsuits. You know, especially against their slanderers, uh, because the Party Free Education movement has started a, a terrible campaign uh, promoting the recording of teachers. It's just it's 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 the vile thing. It's 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 a horrible, where they sometimes record teachers, and they will edit it in order to make the teacher say something that she or he didn't say in the classroom. And this heavily edited video then will prove that there is indoctrination going on in schools. So it's really hard to teach in, center, in, in, in such a regime of fear because they're always paranoid, especially people in the private schools, where because the teachers in, 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 in the public system have mostly have tenure, so they won't get fired easily. They maybe will change schools, but they won't get fired. But if you're working for a private school, they pay well, so you need to, to, to basically stand in line and uh, it will create an atmosphere of fear, of paranoia, because you don't know if, you know, if, 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 the, if the student is just looking at his cell phone or if he is recording you. Uh, and politicians are stimulating that kind of behavior. Uh, but overall, teachers are trying to fire back with lawsuits, with campaigns, and by starting grassroots movements and as for party-free education, we have been gaining small victories because the Supreme Court has declared the movement unconstitutional. So all the bills that are supporting to try to curtail free speech in the, in the classroom will not become law. You know? But the problem is not the law. The problem is what it creates in terms of atmosphere in the schools. And this is really, really hard. hard. Uh, they did a damage to our profession that will take us many, many years to recover. And no wonder you now educational careers are the ones who are seeing uh, the biggest flight of students. Now they're simply ab abandoning their careers, abandoning their undergrad uh, courses for order for other careers because you know it's really it's really it's it's really a heavy atmosphere for these careers right now in Brazil. You, you mentioned a couple of times this program called Party Free Education. Can you, can you just briefly tell us what, what is that exactly? Uh, the Party Free Education movement was founded in 2004 by a conservative Catholic lawyer from Sao Paulo, uh, who one day, according to him, we, we have absolutely no evidence that it happened, uh, that he was going through his daughter's history assignments one day, and he saw a comparison between Che Guevara, the revolutionary, and St. Francis of Assisi, the Catholic saint. Uh, and once again, we don't have any evidence that ever happened. He never named names. He didn't you know, provide us with any substantial proof of it. And he 
was then uh, disgusted, according to his words, with this comparison, and then started a small grassroots movement in order to try to cleanse, in his own words, uh, Brazilian education from ideology. Obviously, you know, he presents himself as being someone without an ideology. Uh, uh, the ideologues are always the others. So, uh, but when it first started, it was really just a small number of far riders, you know, convening together to basically say bad things about Brazilian education. They didn't have much political power. But once the right war turn in Brazilian politics began, about 10 years ago, a little bit later than that, that the party slowly started to gain a lot of the party, the movement, sorry, started to gain a lot of attention by the media. And they have connections with the Bolsonaro family. To make a, a, a long story short, the whole point of this movement is try to promote a neutral-based education in the schools, in which, when it comes to history especially, in which children will have access to all interpretations of the same event, which obviously is a delusion, and then children will be able to choose whatever interpret, whichever interpretation they think are uh, the best for them because they promote the family as the source of all power in, in education. So according to them, education, both private and public, should not contradict whatever family values the children have. So if you are uh, a children of Catholic parents or evangelical parents, then you must have an education you know, in tandem with your views, uh, which is absolutely uh, nuts if you pardon my French, because the whole point of, of public education is fomenting a pluralistic view of society, not just confirming our family views about things. And they've been successful, if not uh, by passing the laws, the bills that they wanted to pass, you know, they've been defeated most of the times, uh, but they helped to create this environment of paranoia, of these attacks against history teachers, mostly history teachers, they, they, they haven't focused on, 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 on universities as much. Their, uh, their focus has been mostly history teachers, women especially. There's a strong misogynistic streak in the movement. Uh, and they've been trying, they have a channel on their website when you can post anonymous uh, claims saying that, oh, the teacher said that, the teacher said that, which is just horrible, really. Uh, and they've been very important, I think, this has actually have been understudied, uh, very important in Bolsonaro's ascension to power and in his discourse against history and historians because they eventually created this homogeneous image of historians as indoctrinators, as cultural Marxists, as people who want to, uh, who, who want to uh, impose gender ideology uh, onto the kids. I mean, it's the same rhetoric of the American far right, of the European far right, but since they're in power in Brazil, things get much, much worse, really. Yeah, and that's exactly what, um, what my follow-up question would be, because very similar uh, sentiment is also on the rise here in Europe, where indeed, uh, even in the Netherlands, there was a call from a right-wing party to create a list. Students had to create a list uh, whenever they felt like their teacher was 
uh, saying something according to a so-called so left agenda. So the, these voices are very similar, but in Brazil at this moment, they're reaching some kind of extreme. Indeed, what you refer to as an environment of paranoia, or an environment of, in which teachers are um, working in fear basically. So I, I was wondering, do you maybe have some tips or suggestions for uh, us here to learn from the situation in Europe before it's too late? Well, uh, most of the sources about what's going on in Brazil are unfortunately in Portuguese or Spanish, you know, given our Latin American environment. I think the situation in Brazil is not as widely known as others because we're still not an authoritarian state, legally at least. And since we do not have arrests and legal persecutions or even executions, uh, people may think that it's just a passing phase, it's just, but things are getting worse every day. And we must use all channels to denounce that. What you call as a passing phase, that people think, oh, this, this will pass. And then we're kind of reluctant, maybe the silent majority doesn't take action. And then you can see where it eventually leads. So I think that's, that's a good warning for, um, us here in Europe, where we definitely have similar sentiments as well. Yeah, and in fact, that, that it provides a nice segue into uh, a question I would like to ask to, to Anton de Bats, um, because we, we've talked a lot about Brazil now and, and, and the worrying developments that, that we see there. Um, but you, in, in, your, in your mapping of, of uh, uh, censorship and, and persecution of historians, uh, have, you, have you seen anything, any parallels somewhat closer to home, uh, things that are happening here in, in Europe, perhaps? Yes, of course, you know, there is always that uh, balance between similarities and dissimilarities. The uh, separate contexts are very, very different. Brazil, United States, Europe, it's not the same. But of course, there are parallels. For example, when uh, Arturo speaks about uh, professors being watched, then uh, I have to think immediately to um, the United States where there is an organization called Professor's Watch List in which also professors are being followed and then uh, eventually pillarized, uh, pillarized. Um, but uh, when, I, I, when I lift the problem sketched so ably by Arturo to a more general level and in spite of all the many differences and the differences are important I think that we still can find a common denominator and in my opinion the common denominator in all these various cases is the following and it is that the price of participation in a democracy is perpetual vigilance. Vigilance against authoritarianism, of course. The people living, citizens living and participating in a democracy should also be eternally vigilant against those leaders, democratically elected leaders, populist leaders who pretend to speak on behalf of and in the name of the people while at the same time bypassing parliament, 
bypassing the courts up uh, to the Supreme Court, as in, as in uh, the story in Brazil, and bypassing civil society. But here there is a but. A democracy is not enough. Participation in a democracy, in my view, means nothing if it is not based on two pillars. The first pillar is respect for the rule of law. That is absolutely crucial, the rule of law. But it, the respect for the rule of law is not sufficient. It should be supplemented with respect for human rights. And what we need is this triangle, democracy, the rule of law, and respect for human rights. And they have to be worked, they have to be approached in, in combination. And historical awareness that we achieve via history education, this ability to situate the present day events in a longer term perspective, this historical awareness helps us to achieve that triangle, the triangle of democracy, rule of law, and respect for human rights. And I'm always uh, reminded of um, Thomas Mazarik, the first president of an independent Czechoslovakia, which was created after the First World War, he once famously said, now that we have a democracy, Mazarik said, now that we have a democracy, what we also need are Democrats. And I think that is a profound truth. If there is anything in which history education can make a difference, it is here. We, we, we have a democracy, an emergent democracy, or a flawed democracy, or a stable democracy. And I think that Brazil combines these three traits in, in, in itself. It is emergent democracy, a stable democracy, and a flawed democracy all at once nowadays. But to create Democrats, we need history education. Thank you very much, Professor Anton de Bats. That was a very nice uh, way to, to, to summarize, I think, the, the discussion we had today. And it points to the importance that we, we play as, um, as history educators and, and the role that we, we have. Uh, just as a final question to, to both of you, in fact, uh, we've listened to, to how the situation in Brazil has been developing in a, in a worrying way. Um, is there any way that we can support our colleagues uh, facing censorship or persecution, be it in Brazil or somewhere else? Um, is there any sort of campaign or anything that we can, we can, we can do concretely to, to, to combat this situation? Of course, uh, campaigning for persecuted colleagues is the concern out of which that uh, small network of concerned historians was born 25 years ago. Um, but I must admit that the international community of historians has been rather reluctant 
who participate in the protection of human rights of its professionals. Yes, it has a constitution, the International Committee of uh, Historical Sciences, which was created in 1926 and is still the leading body for the international community of historians. It has a constitution in which freedom of expression for historians is absolutely central in the first article of our constitution. But that is uh, about it. There have been very few global initiatives. And this is very different uh, from, for example, the archivists. The archivists on a worldwide level, they have created um, a human rights working group and they have a flowering human rights approach and they have had it for at least a decade. And I believe that Euroclio, as a leading uh, player in the field of history education worldwide, it is one of the leaders, perhaps it is the leader, could do more. And the first thing we need is systematic attention. And I, I have seen this over the years, the network of concerned historians has reported about dozens of history textbook controversies all over the world in 50 or 60 countries because there have been a lot of history textbook rows in Brazil, but also in China, in Taiwan, in South Korea, in, um, in uh, almost all countries of Europe. Everywhere there have been rows about history textbooks, often accompanied by censorship attempts. But when I look for traces of these controversies and censorship attempts, on the Euroclio website, I discovered that they are fragmented and scattered. And therefore, I, I propose that Euroclio found or establish a human rights working group, a group that coordinates information about those history teachers in Europe, but also outside Europe, um, who are in danger. And that is the first step. This could be done. It is not so much work. It can be done simply. It, can, it should have, a, in my opinion, a light organizational form. It is not difficult to start it. It is easy. The difficult thing is to continue and to persevere and to be there all the time. Uh, but Euroclio has a structure. It has proven its value. It was founded in 1992. It has existed for 28 years. It is still there. And it could, um, it could give the example to the world of history teachers uh, in, in, uh, all across the globe and start with a small uh, human rights working group that works for the human rights of history teachers and history textbook authors worldwide. Well, I, I should say thank you on behalf of your Cleo for your confidence in, in, in our work. And, and of course, we are, we are eager to, to continue um, to pushing in the right direction of, of what we believe is, is important. And, and what we have talked about in today's episode is, of course, very much part of our, our mission and our vision for what history education should, should, the direction we want to go. Absolutely. 
I don't know if Professor Avila also uh, wanted to contribute to the final question. Well, I think uh, one of the things that you know people from outside of Brazil can do is basically just make visible the things that are going on here, just through social media, uh, their networks, intellectual networks, political networks, in any way they can help. Uh, because the more people know about what's going on uh, and the more people are aware of what is going on, then there'll be a slight chance that some form of international reproach can happen against Bolsonaro's government. Uh, you know, so I think, I think what, since we work in national frameworks, sometimes these national frameworks prevent us from seeing the global discipline and the global profession. But I think I, I, I agree with Tun when he says that, you know, we must work in tandem. We, we, we must connect our networks in order to make not only the situation in Brazil, but other situations visible. Because uh, since democracy is now in crisis, worldwide crisis, some places are still, uh, still formal democracies, but we're seeing you know, the erosion of democratic values and democratic governments everywhere. So I think right now it's the, it's the time to make these attacks on Storians, to denounce these attacks against Storians and to make visible situations like that of Brazil, you know, especially when they're still not in their worst shape, when there's still some, when there's still some, some things that can be done to prevent the worst from happening. Thank you very much to both of you for, for your contributions today. And uh, it was really, um, well, I, I, I struggled to use the word interesting. Uh, it was a bit worrying to listen to the, the, the situation in Brazil and, and the developments that you, you are experiencing. And, and we, uh, I think on behalf of our listeners, we can extend our, our, our best wishes to, you, to your continued work in, in Porto Alegre. Arthur, thank you very much you. for, for joining us. Thank you very much to Professor Anton de Batz for joining us from Groningen and uh, have a very nice evening. Yes, thank you so much. Today's episode, we talked about the state of history education in Brazil. We see some concerning trends that have parallels elsewhere, of course, even here in Europe. Um, but we also talk more broadly about the persecution of historians and history teachers. Maike, what did you take out of today's episode? Yeah, so uh, Professor Debats talked about five pillars of good history education. And actually those five pillars are uh, characteristics of good history education. So potentially good history education could be perceived dangerous by people in power. Therefore, I think our job is just so important that we have to make sure that we safeguard democracy. Absolutely. And I, I think it also, in, a, in many ways, ties in very nicely with the first episode that we did with Professor Weinberg about digital media literacy skills and, and how, how it is important that we know what we are reading and that we know the credentials and where it comes from and whether or not we can trust it because that's what democracy is based upon. Exactly. And I think both um, Professor de Butts, Professor Avila and Professor Weinberg, or all of them, have pointed to the fact that our state of his democracy is, is in, on the threat. Yeah, it's yeah. fragile. and, and um, as history educators, we, we can play a really important role. We have a task. We have a task. Yeah.